Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with my excellent co-host, Tony Shang who is, among other things, a product lead at Centraland. He publishes analysis on the business strategy of crypto at TonyShang.com. Read all of his stuff. Uh, he's also uh, an advisor to Token Daily and one of Village's network leaders. I'm also joined with Spencer Noon and Cyrus Unessi. Guys, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, currently, I'm Director of Research and Trading at Scalar Capital, an investment firm specializing in crypto assets. Uh, we invest in cl- exclusively in crypto. Our investment thesis is focused on privacy, but we're involved across the whole spectrum, Bitcoin, Ethereum, some promising new projects as well. Previously, I spent about seven years trading fixed income securities in Chicago and most recently at Cumberland, a crypto OTC desk. Uh, right now, I'm just excited to see how this space plays out over the next couple of years. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Spencer Nair and I'm an investor at Doggy Tail Crypto Capital. Some people call us DTC Capital. We're a diversified crypto fund um, based in South Florida, um, backed by a, a single family office down there. And I'm really excited to be on. So thanks for having me again. I, I just want to continue you hearing you say Doggy Tail Capital. I can tell you the story offline. It's a, it's a fun one. Awesome. Cool. So we're here to talk today about, about Ethereum. So there's a lot we want to get into, but why don't we start off with what is the the core investing thesis for Ethereum? Like, why are you guys so excited about it relative to other smart contract platforms? And why are you excited about it today when we're down, you know, 75% in 2018? For me, the, the core thesis for Ethereum is that it's an ambitious research-driven cryptocurrency that has by far the largest and most meaningful developer mindshare in the space. By research-driven, I mean that the Ethereum developers, they spend a lot of time optimizing for security by tinkering with protocol parameters. Uh, It's quickly developed the best user infrastructure in crypto. I think it has the most compelling roadmap towards scalability without having to sacrifice decentralization. has powerful dApps and the best consensus research for an alternative to proof-of-work. And for all the value accrual maximalists, it's easily one of the most clear-cut cases for a store of value in crypto that I can see. Uh, Ether inherits all the fundamentals that make any true crypto great, such as, you know, being a censorship-resistant sound money, or, you know, some like to call it a digital gold that can, you know, rival fiat currencies. Cool. Yeah, so, so for us, um, Ether is the programmable reserve currency for the world's open financial system. I think there's this fundamental you know, misconception that Ether is only used as gas for transactions. But in reality, it's a lot more. It's, it's working capital for people in this new open financial system. And so the vision that I think we have is really all you need is some Ether and, and a smartphone. And we can start talking about providing a full suite of financial services to the 2 billion unbanked people in the world. Um, so things like storing value in stable assets, fundraising, receiving a loan, exchanging assets, getting insurance, leveraging prediction markets, 
these are all systems they're evolving at a rapid pace and, and ether is the common denominator to leveraging them all it's truly programmable money so i think we're seeing you know holding ether right now is becoming this shelling point for accessing these systems and it's developing a monetary premium before our very eyes so i'm excited to dig into each of uh, the things that you've mentioned but just just channeling my uh, inner fat money ist how do you respond to like the you know basic counterpoints to these these properties like you know Cyrus you mentioned ETH has some of the properties of sound money a fat money person might say that it has suboptimal properties compared to something like Bitcoin and because money is winner take all ETH can't win or Spencer you're talking about ETH as working capital and people might hold ETH to participate in these uh, these new this new financial system but critics would say that there really aren't that many users people aren't using eth for these things yet yeah maybe cyrus you first and then and then spencer so i i think there's a difference between what's the best store value today and what is the best store value in the future in the present i think everything's still really kind of kind of bad and i think the majority of us are actually just speculating on what will one day develop into a quality store value Sorry, I think this applies to Bitcoin as well because just has too many unknowns today regarding scalability and privacy. And, and the same applies to Ethereum too. So as an investor, I'm looking more towards tomorrow. You know, which project is trending in the direction that will best position itself to be dominant in the future? And I think there's a very strong case to be made for Ethereum to be the one. Primarily, I think it will have the best monetary policy of all the cryptos someday. And I know that sounds crazy given that there's a lot of controversy about ETH's, you know, constantly changing inflation schedule. But I mean, I can't argue enough how misplaced I think those criticisms are. First of all, like no one is advocating for arbitrary inflation above the minimum needed to secure the chain. You know, but but what is that minimum and what is enough security? And these kind of questions they they require research. They require some empirical testing, you know, which requires tinkering with the numbers. And, you know, this is exactly what the Ethereum developers have been working on for, you know, the past five years. You know, I don't think that you can just pick an arbitrary number out of the air and say, you know, this is what we're going to secure the, the chain with. You know, what's what's the plan in 20 years or so when the Bitcoin block reward runs out? You know, no one really knows. and. That's a massive latent risk in Bitcoin today that obviously no one talks about. And all of this research that you know Vitalik and the rest of the Ethereum researchers have been doing on proof of stake is basically how can we achieve the maximum security for the least possible cost? And I think that's the crypto that will have the most optimal monetary policy. And that's the one that I want to be invested in today despite it not being fully fleshed out. You know, I think that that takes you a long way towards making ETH a store value in the future because it's, you know, research-driven instead of, you know, arbitrary. The, this could be an argument against Ethereum as well, the, the working capital or, or gas model. Like, if you need Ethereum to access all these different services and you pay for these services using Ethereum, then you might run into something that people refer to as the velocity problem where 
people only acquire and hold Ethereum for the shortest amount of time that they need to in order to access all of these things. This this thesis says that if you have that dynamic, then the price of that currency goes down because it's being spent so rapidly. Um, why, why is why is this different for Ethereum? How, how do you how could you see people storing value in something that's being used as working capital? Yep. That's a great question. I I think it fundamentally assumes that interoperability between a store of value, hard money, if you will, is going to be super seamless and easy. You know, there's a great argument to be made that um, if that was the case, then Americans would and people in the world would be storing all their money in gold and then, you know, moving it over to fiat on a daily basis. And that just is not what we see in practice, right? It comes down to things like convenience and um, the ability to go in and out of these things seamlessly. And I don't necessarily think that that is going to be the case. And in addition, the idea that a hard cap of supply is the best monetary policy for a crypto asset, I'm not ready to say that's the case. There are studies that have come out that have shown that Bitcoin is going to have real problems when you know there aren't any block rewards and you're just relying on a fee market basically to secure the network are we sure that the incentives for that are going to be correct i think this whole process of figuring out what is you know the best store of value um kind of i think we're talking about a really long time horizon right this is dozens of years and i think in the you know immediate future um, it remains to be seen which one is preferable. And, and Ethereum, their community has been pragmatic and it's kind of uncertain about what the best is. And and I admire that um, as an investor. I, just to jump in, I think that the velocity thesis makes a number of assumptions which aren't actually correct. For example, ETH has been used as money for you know plenty of ICOs last year. I know that ICOs aren't the the best use case, but nonetheless, people were using ETH as a money. And, you know, a large majority of these projects didn't just sell off their ETH. They they held it as ETH as well. Um, another app right now called Maker, which governs the stable governs a stable coin. It has, you know, a significant amount of ether locked up as collateral. And, you know, this particular use case is a is a major velocity sink for ether in general. You know, when ETH moves to proof of stake, that'll also kind of suck supply out of the float even further. Um, so I think that this notion that you can kind of just get in and out of apps, in and out of apps with ETH is, you know, doesn't doesn't show to be is hasn't shown to be empirically true. Furthermore, I think there are also technical problems in the velocity thesis that are still unsolved. You know, for example, if someone was holding Bitcoin and they just wanted to, you know, use a particular Ethereum application, I mean, they would have to first, they'd have to settle a Bitcoin transaction to the blockchain, which, you know, if Bitcoin has large adoption could be, you know, hundreds of dollars in transaction fees. They would then have to pay the bid ask spread of the conversion from Bitcoin to ETH. And, you know, they would also have to use some, you know, as of today, non-existent in interoperability protocol, which will have costs of its own. Um, I think if ETH fails, it won't be due to any velocity problems. Just it'll 
probably be for other reasons. But I think the idea that floating around that the Ethereum network, you know, I've heard that people say that it could process you know, trillions of, of dollars worth of, you know, transactions, yet the Ether price could be very low. Uh, I think empirically, every piece of data we've seen is kind of shown to be, you know, counter to that. And one thing that I would just jump in and add is, you know, we kind of have this, what I would call a false dilemma that has been um, furthered by a lot of really smart investors in this industry about how you can, it's a store of value or it's a utility token, right? And, you know, there's only going to be one store of value or perhaps a power law distribution and everything else becomes a utility token where you're only, you know, it's effectively commoditized. And you're only paying for the computational power, for example, that um, you need to do with that token. And I just think that we should check those assumptions because it's it's not true, right? Cyrus made a great point about Maker. You know, a half of a percent of all, you know, outstanding Ether is locked up in CDPs right now. So that, that is wild. one example of, that is, it's wild. It's one example of how Ether is not just being used as gas. It is being used as collateral. It'll also be used as collateral for other applications. Um, it'll be used in decentralized application. Um, so I, it, it's really tough for me to um, just say, you know, it's only going to be, let, let's look at, you know, top down, how much computation is out there and just back into this like idea of, you know, how much this, this network needs to be secured. Like there's so much uncertainty. And I think as a as an investor in crypto, you have to be okay with uncertainty. You can't reasonably get up here with a straight face and say, "I'm convinced that you know the market cap for a store of value is seven trillion because that is the market cap of gold today." In, in reality, we're dealing with completely different paradigms of technology, of people, of organizations, um, and and ether is really at the cutting edge of of all of this. So, you know. It remains to be seen how this will continue to be used. And I'm, and, and I've, for one, tried to kind of remove myself from this, the monetary history aspect of the debate, because I think it's one excellent lens to look at this stuff, but it's not the only lens. How would you compare Ethereum to other smart contract uh, protocols? And how do you think they can, you know, compete or coexist? You know, I see a world in which, uh, we have multiple complementary smart contract protocols. I, I think, um, you know, there are fundamental design trade-offs that are needed when you're creating these decentralized networks. Are you optimizing for security? Are you optimizing for high throughput? Um, the list kind of goes on. And, and where I think Ethereum has carved out a niche um, that for me is is compelling and um, something that is going to be really difficult for it to to be usurped by just by virtue of its market cap is it is the far and away the platform to issue native digital assets. Um, and it is the chain where those assets are secured um, and live. And so I think, you know, when you think about um, different smart contract protocols all coming to market, you know, we have some great um, kind of blockchain 2.0, 3.0 um, projects. I think it's um, pretty reasonable to, to expect uh, for example, computation to be outsourced to something like a Definity, but the ultimate kind of settlement um, layer 
happening uh, with the protocol that's hardest to attack. Um, and I think that's where I see Ethereum um, playing in uh, quite well. And and I think first mover advantages and network effects are, are pretty huge here as well. Um, you know, if you're going to compete with Ethereum, do you have meaningful differentiation? Uh, incremental changes probably aren't going to cut it at this point. Um, you know, I think... I think it was uh, Murad who said that, you know, if you're not like a 10x improvement over the incumbent, then you just kind of don't really have a shot just because of how, you know, sticky network effects and first mover advantages can be. Um, you know, an analog would be, you know, all the all the early competitors to Bitcoin just completely, you know, just died out and faltered. You know, you can you can see the coin market cap, you know, rankings from three, four years ago. and and most of the top 10 is dead, you know, and it wasn't really until Ethereum came along that, you know, it was maybe the first coin that provided a, you know, metaphorical 10x improvement. And, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to usurp ETH based on a smart contract platform, then, you know, what are you adding that's just going to completely blow everybody away? Um, you know, sure, Definity could be interesting as well as some others, but you know, it takes a lot of time and energy to, you know, build up community, build up the liquidity. Um, yeah, so I mean, I definitely following it, but I think it's a it's a huge uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, because you mentioned Murad, uh, if Murad or any other sort of, you know, fat monies or, you know, Bitcoin maximalist was was here in this conversation, how would you sort of describe the the crux of your uh, of your disagreements, like, at the most like first uh, principles layer? Um, so I have, you know, I have a number of unanswered questions about Bitcoin that I think are very crucial in terms of, uh, you know, determining who's going to kind of be the winner take all, if it is a winner take all. Um, you know, my, my primary question is how will Bitcoin be secured without a block reward, you know, 20 years from now? Um, I think it's, you know, kind of interesting that a lot of People tend to attack ETH for being inflationary. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think anyone is advocating for any inflation more than the minimum necessary. Um, you know, and something that the you know the Bitcoin fat money proponents always point to is the security of the protocol and the low full node costs, and you know how decentralized it is. And and you know, I kind of tend to agree that as of today, in this moment. Sure, Bitcoin is, you know, more decentralized, it's more secure, but how much of that relies on the fact that it has, you know, severe scaling challenges, which it kind of, I don't want to say refuses to address, because obviously there's a lot of great scaling work being done by the, by various Bitcoin teams, but I just think it's important to know that, you know, if it, if it's not able to solve those challenges, then it kind of falls into the same, you know, pitfalls that ethereum is in right now you know will bitcoin one day be forced to change its monetary policy in order to maintain security the bitcoin supporters definitely you know are are strict in saying that you know the monetary policy will never change that there will only ever be 21 million coins. but you know just kind of kind of turns into like a you know a dilemma of sorts is where something has to break and you know i don't think that with those unanswered questions that 
it's kind of fair to criticize Ethereum or say that, you know, there's no chance that a contender will come along and, and pose a threat. Since you mentioned scalability, are you concerned at all about Ethereum scalability? You know, I, I, I'd be more concerned if it wasn't taking this long. For me, it's a sign of how security conscious the developers are. You know, a lot of people tend to criticize ETH for its move fast, break things mentality. I think that's it's a bit of a false narrative as far as, you know, proof of stake and sharding and, and plasma, you know, they've taken years to research and they seem to be very deliberate about how to implement it. You know, I don't think, I think scaling is a, you know, industry-wide challenge. I'm not really critical of any team that's trying to, you know, implement scaling solutions because, you know, these are the pioneers of the space and they should all be supported. No, I wouldn't say I'm any more concerned about ETH scaling than, you know, any other particular crypto that's trying to find a solution. Yeah, and for me, you know, I think a lot of criticism has been levied recently at Ethereum and the development and research efforts to um, building Ethereum 2.0 with with proof of stake and sharding. And I think those will have fundamental impacts on on performance that will kind of be experienced by every stakeholder in this network. But for me, I'm not worried about scaling whatsoever because in in my opinion ethereum can scale today it is a design issue for a lot of apps if they want to create something that can process tens of thousands of transactions per second they have an opportunity to build on layer two right now there are projects like loom um, you know with counterfactual and all they're doing with generalized state channels Spank Chain and others that are showing a, an actual blueprint for um, building your decentralized application that doesn't necessitate a base layer chain that does tens of thousands of transactions per second. I think even if these scaling improvements to layer one happen, there is an argument to be made that decentralized applications should be built on layer two anyway. When you think about the security guarantees, do they does every single transaction really need to have um, complete security and be processed by every node of the network, and you know as such have a ton of, of user friction, um, especially with fees? Like I'm not so sure. I really think that um, you know building on top of Ethereum can be can be done today, and and that's at at layer two. Uh, Spencer, what kind of timeline are you? Are you envisioning for, you know, for for the community to reach a point where, you know, like th- there aren't really any meaningful bottlenecks in terms of the kind of transaction throughput that, you know, users want to have? Uh, I think it's a super loaded question. I think it really depends. Um, I think for give like certain applications, it's very possible to um, create a plasma child chain with you know, whether it be proof of authority or tendermint or some other type of consensus in which you're getting, you know, really high throughput um, in a kind of frictionless user experience where you're not waiting for transactions to be cleared on the base chain. I think over time, we're, we're certainly, and I have confidence in, you know, all of the different um, initiatives that are happening with kind of Ethereum 2.0 scaling. And I think it's, you know, a commendable research effort. 
Um, but I don't think we necessarily need that to be shipped in order for um, performant applications to be live on, on Ethereum. Yeah, that's interesting. We <clears throat> At Decentraland, we actually used state channels for our initial land auction back at the end of 2017. Um, and every day I'm seeing a little bit more progress on Layer 2 stuff to make it easier for devs to build on ETH. I think it's right. just th- th- there weren't really a lot of easy ways for devs to do it unless they were already really familiar with the space and comfortable experimenting. But totally. it seems like that's changing. I, th- I think it's changing by the day and like right before our very eyes. Like, you know, I think I was listening to um, uh, Joey from Augur talk on Laura Shin's podcast about how um, they had briefly looked at layer two to, to implement um, some of their smart contracts and they realized like they just didn't even know where to start. And, and that's perfectly understandable. But I think over time with more of these frameworks being developed and other people really gawking at these ideas, um, it's going to be easy for anyone to come in and not have um, domain specific knowledge about you know, exiting layer two fraud proofs or anything like that, they can just write code in their normal language um, and have these frameworks kind of help them get over the last mile. And I think once that happens, um, we're going to see some really compelling and fast performing use cases for decentralized applications. Do you, do you guys think we need them though? Like from an investor's perspective, you guys want, if, if you're bullish on ETH, then you want it to appreciate in price. Does that thesis depend on, you know, some critical mass of apps that require high throughput? Or is it possible for those to never exist on Ethereum and you guys still to be right? I, I think it, so, you know, the Ethereum um, layer one can only process so many transactions per second. So um, if there is a critical mass of decentralized applications that are all working at layer two, and then, you know, they're doing settlement transactions on layer one, at some point, you're still going to reach this point where you need scalability on the base layer. Um, so I, I do think that at some point it's going to be necessary, but I don't think it is the um, pressing issue that that many people think it is. Well, just to clarify, I'm not talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, solving some scalability issues for Ethereum. I'm talking about adoption of uh, apps built on top of Ethereum and some, you know, critical mass of users using these apps. I think there's, there's a lot of uh, hand-wringing about the current state of daily active users for uh, apps built on Ethereum right now. Um, I'm just curious whether like your thesis around Ethereum depends on some huge wave of mass market users onto Ethereum apps or whether you think that's like a nice to have for your thesis. Uh, I think it's, I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, I think a big part of the draw is at least a big part of the investment thesis is utility driving user adoption. And from that user adoption, kind of drives the store of value uh, narrative. And you know, I mean, Ethereum is is meant to be a platform for decentralized applications, and we want users to feel that this this is the only place that you can interact and use applications of this kind. And we want to kind of bring in as many users as possible. And I think that's absolutely going to require you know all sorts of scaling solutions to to come about um i'm definitely not of the mindset that you know we can all just kind of sit around and 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 
you know, do nothing and be hampered by the, the limitations of the chain and kind of expect the price to just skyrocket. Um, I think that a big part of the draw is is the ability to do things that you can't do anywhere else. And I I would say that I depart a little bit from that. Um, And the reason is because um, when you think about blockchains, they are offering things that centralized applications could could never give, right? This is censorship resistance. And um, although it would be really nice to have, you know, performance, high performance blockchains, um, those, that quality um, can still be the basis for, even with it being super slow, um, killer applications. And so we're already seeing that now with, with something like a MakerDAO and which, like we said, there's so much, you know, already being locked up in, in, in CDPs. This is giving people a trustless stablecoin, a, a currency that they've never had before that, you know, if you're in a, you know, a different country, um, you've never had access to a non-volatile asset. And so are they going to be okay with waiting 10 minutes for a block to clear if in the worst case scenario? I think it would still be a compelling value proposition for for them to use those services. Now, we'll see if, if um, you know, scalability while keeping decentralization can't be um, achieved. But um, for now, we'll see. I don't know. What um I'm curious what what would need to be true for you to change your mind about Ethereum? Like what new facts could emerge that, that make you say, ah, you know what? I'm I'm not as excited as I was, or no longer excited. Um for me I think you know, I think if if some of these proposed scaling solutions and the transition to proof of stake, they kind of flounder. Um I think that's a bit of a buzzkill for me. Um, you know, if, if the, if the conservatism of the Bitcoin community ends up, you know, being a much more safer kind of path for investors, you know, if there's any, you know, if there's continues to be, you know, hacks or sort of protocol level failures of the Ethereum network, you know, it kind of be, become start, it start to become a bit disillusioned. Um, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of hope in the Ethereum community. I think there is in all of crypto. I think you know Ethereum, particularly, has a has a you know has a lot of it. Um, you know, we've started to see some delays in in certain proposed upgrades. I think for now, kind of everybody's holding tight, and you know, we all still believe that meaningful progress is being made, and you know, the research is going well, but. I think there's there's a limit to you know there's a limit to everybody's investment time preferences. I would have to see um, meaningful changes to the Ethereum community, whether that's people leaving to work on other protocols, decentralized applications leaving in mass to go work on build on something else. Um, and there's kind of a whole host of doomsday scenarios um, when you think about switching smart contract platforms. But my thesis has always been that it is much harder said than done um, for some of these other smart contract platforms to usurp Ethereum. And I think, like Cyrus was saying before, they need to be meaningfully um, better, not just like a couple times better. They have to be 
you know, something that is really going to change the game for some of them, because what are you giving up? Um, you're giving up so much, um, whether it's, uh, you know, interoperability with all of these other um, assets and tokens that, that live on Ethereum, your liquidity, right? If you go to another platform, um, no longer can you have exchanges uh, onboard your token in 15 to 20 minutes by just changing a couple parameters with ERC-20. Um, so I think it's something that you have to constantly monitor, just like in every single crypto asset. Um, but you know, you try to keep an open mind, and I think the Ethereum community is is a little bit more robust than people give it credit for. So what would uh well so so if it's not um that easy to switch over to another protocol, and you guys feel pretty optimistic about the scaling issues, and Ethereum is the you know soundest, most secure, most decentralized protocol in your minds compared to uh, Bitcoin, um, or like second to Bitcoin, then what what does an Ethereum killer look like? Like, you know, if you were tasked to design the Ethereum killer and take it to market, what would you do? I think it's, I think it's, it, I think it's its own worst enemy right now. Um, I kind of don't see, you know, anything else coming along and, and outperforming it. I just kind of think that maybe, you know, it could just fail in its, in its current goals. Um, you know, there, there's definitely a case to be made for the Bitcoin way of doing things. It's conservative layer one approach and trying to kind of, you know, tack on all these bells and whistles on a, on a second layer. And while there's still a lot of unanswered questions about that approach, it still, you know, poses a challenge. It, it still poses a threat. Um, I think some sort of conservative Bitcoin approach would be more of a, ethereum killer than you know maybe like a definity or an eos would be and are you are you specifically saying like have something like more like bitcoin as the base protocol and then have all of the bells and whistles on um higher layers yeah as far as i can tell that's like that's like the most significant you know uh competitor to the ethereum way of doing things which is kind of you know for now a lot of a lot of activity is being put on the base layer and you know there's a lot obviously a lot of you know second layer solutions in the works but you know if ethereum's base layer never becomes quite as secure as, as bitcoin's which you know i i expect that it will but if it doesn't then i think you know that conservative engineering approach is probably the, the largest threat yeah um I'm not so sure that uh, something like Bitcoin and leveraging higher order layers um, with its kind of limited scripting language are ever going to 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 work. Maybe they will, um, but I think we've we've seen, you know, kind of empirically that developers aren't aren't going to develop on on that. I think an Ethereum killer is a general purpose um, compute platform um, with smart contracts but probably one that solves um, this quote-unquote scalability trilemma that you know, folks like Kyle Samani and Vitalik have, have talked about, which is you know, having you know, something that is safe, scalable, and decentralized as it relates to, to block production. And so if something can do that, and at the same time, Ethereum can't establish um, those things, whether using Layer 2 or um, with its 2.0, improvements then then it could be taken taken down for sure 
Why haven't there been any successful dApps on Ethereum? Yeah, I love this question. Um, so uh, for starters, I think a lot of people don't have a good definition for a decentralized application that we can all agree on. So um, when you see these numbers talking about daily active users, they're actually um, unique accounts that have made transactions. But we all know in the kind of you know centralized app world that that's not how you define um, a daily active user in a, in a lot of cases. Um, and it's also optimizing for the wrong thing. This is uh, suggesting that we're going to get a platform with um, the next you know, Facebook or something like that. Um, but I think our core thesis is that Ethereum is programmable money and that you have applications that could you know, never have been built um, on centralized infrastructure. So I think you need to start thinking about not daily active users as being kind of that metric, but money that is being secured in the system. Um, and when you think about uh, assets, sorry, assets being secured in the Ethereum ecosystem, it gets it's it's in the you know order of magnitude of, of billions of dollars, and so um, for me that it, that is a success. So, but does that make you less excited about um, like more cons- typical internet consumer style use cases, and more focused on things like issuing stable coins or fundraising or debt stuff like that? Yeah, no, it's a Tony. That's a great question. I think I I see it more as the progress progression for which um, decentralized applications will evolve. And so like these first you know sets of, of apps, I think they're going to be financially based. Um, and that is just kind of by virtue of the platform. But in the future, I think once we've had these kind of primitives um, created, regular kind of more or sorry less financial type applications, could certainly become built. I just think right now we, we don't really know what those look like. Um, we don't really know what you know applications that need to be on blockchains look like, but we do know that we already have product market fit with these financial applications. The world needs an open financial system. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yes, I mean, are you like are are you looking like excitedly to projects that are making these types of things like uh you know the, you know a, a huge goal of ethereum since the early days was to bank the unbanked but i think skeptics would say that we haven't done uh, made that much progress towards that yet well you know when, when are we going to start seeing projects that are actually doing that i think the reality is that you know these applications are obviously much harder to create than than people think and you know, users don't really have the technical knowledge yet to kind of mess around with these applications. And there's obviously, you know, some security risks with with certain apps. I think that we're still in like the infrastructure development stage of things. So, you know, for example, MetaMask has been huge for driving adoption. And some of these other apps like Augur, you know, which has been criticized recently for its, you know, low users, you know, Augur is really more more of a backend anyways. And, you know, we're expecting to see, you know, more front end facing consumer apps that, you know, runs Augur in the back, you know, in the back end. And so I think that you just need to give it, I think, I think people just need to give it a little bit more time. Um, there's been tremendous 
progress made in the past couple of years? I mean, people think it's bad now, but I mean, does anybody remember what, you know, what the crypto UX was for all the coins, you know, just a couple of years ago? And, you know, as we, you know, as things keep getting better, I think you'll start to see more successful applications. And just to add some color to that, I mean, the UX was like, you would download some EXE like wallet for each of the altcoins and then connect to some server and you never really knew what to trust at each level of that. And there was really nothing you could do with those coins for the most part. So yeah, we, we have we have come a very long way. What's the, so, I mean, scalability is an obvious one, but what what are some of the UX improvements that you think are critical for us to start seeing more users like get, get things to um up, uh, uh, get things to a state where end users will start coming onto these apps yeah i i think one of the big ones is native um browser support with with crypto tokens um it's really nice having uh metamask as like a chrome extension for example and i think they've done you know so much for getting um folks like you and me to be able to use crypto very easily um but if we want something to have truly seamless you know, user experiences, um, it needs to be baked in directly to the browser. So I've definitely looked in, um, you know, it's uh, been really promising to see stuff like um, Coinbase Wallet come out um, and, and others um, that can kind of further and like smooth out that UX. And, and another thing I think is, um, I'm trying to think here from a UX perspective. Yeah. Um, Another thing that I'm looking forward to in, in terms of UX is um, reducing that burden for what the user needs to do in order to leverage an application. So like take the example of Augur, um, anyone who wants to uh, you know, use Augur needs to download and basically um, you know, run their software and run a full um, node. And, and that's really difficult. You need to sync it. Um, you need to um, make sure you have it up to date and, and download it. And I think when you have um, infrastructure such as like a decentralized query layer like the graph, um, you'll be able to, you know, regular people will be able to access um, Augur just using a website browser. Um, and so things like that, incremental improvements are all happening at a rapid pace. It's, it's, it's hard to... Um, realize it because we don't have many applications that are um, like before our very eyes. But I guess from like an investor perspective and from my seat, um, it's 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 really happening fast. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You, you can imagine like, you know, if somebody started a, a DAP project today versus this time last year, their tools that they are using would, I mean, a lot of them would be completely new. 100%. Yeah. Like, who, who are the, you know, who are these people that are like, criticizing apps for being slow. I mean, that's that's just kind of the nature of the entire industry. I mean, development across the whole space just takes, I mean, it just takes ages because it's just kind of groundbreaking new new land. And, you know, I just, just think it's sometimes a bit of like a shifting of goalposts, you know? You know, a couple of years ago, it was like, oh, the, these apps will never launch, you know? And then once it launches, like, okay, these apps will never kind of gain any traction and then you know an app gains traction and then they say okay well you know it's just always one thing after the other and it just kind of seems like there's these you know i mean it's a very tribal industry right so there's always perpetual critics and there's always 
there's always something to harp on. But I think from a very top level perspective, I think, you know, the, the amount of progress that the entire industry has made over the past, you know, eight years has been tremendous by, by any standards. Um, just looking at how, you know, other kind of world changing technologies have, have kind of grown and developed. It's just, it just doesn't happen as fast as, you know, people are, are expecting. Yeah. I mean, one could even consider this to be a good dynamic that every, every milestone that's reached, there's a a mob of critics and then you have another goalpost and you, you go reach that. So in in a way, this like angry mob is like the best product manager for the Ethereum protocol. I I think you're right. And, and I think one of the things that I've looked to and have seen some parallels with is, you know, the market climate of today um, being really reminiscent of that 2014, 2015 um, time when you had this emergent narrative of blockchain, not Bitcoin. Like, why do we need Bitcoin, this volatile crypto asset, when we can simply leverage the blockchain and for all of its good things like transparency, et cetera, um, without ever using that token? And I think, you know, the market corrected 87% from November 2013, when the price of Bitcoin was 1200 and it went all the way down. And investors were looking for this reason for why it happened. And, and so that a narrative emerged that, you know, you just need a blockchain, you don't need Bitcoin. And that was eventually debunked, right? It's pretty well accepted that um, a token is necessary um, in order for these systems to operate. And, and I really believe that we're seeing the same, the same thing with Ethereum. You have ETH is down 81%, you know, from its all-time high, and investors are looking for a reason to explain the price movement, and they're pointing to it, you know, potentially being fundamentally broken with scaling or something like that. But that's not really the case. The reality is that the market is crypto, and it's a boom-bust market, and we've seen time and time again that um, with speculative assets, the price gets ahead of itself, it corrects, it finds a new bottom that's higher than the previous, um, and it carries on. And so I think when we look at um, 2014 as being one of the best times to accumulate Bitcoin, because everyone kind of had written it off, at least to some extent, I suspect that we'll look back and have observed something really similar with Ethereum right now. Yeah, I I agree with that completely. I think, uh, you know, I think with every boom-bust cycle, I mean, obviously, a new price floor is created, you know, the liquidity increases, gives developers, you know, more time to kind of harden their applications and the protocols. And, you know, the, the, the fundamentals have only been increasing, you know, this entire year. I mean, in fact, in many ways, I feel like there's been a lot more advancement in the community this year than last year when we had the historic run. I mean, last year was seemed to be just all about kind of ICO speculation and whatnot. I feel like this year is where we really started to kind of see the launch of the first few flagship apps, you know, uh, meaningful research done on plasma and state channels. And I mean, I, I feel way more bullish about Ethereum this year than I did last year. So yeah, I mean, it's just the, the price just doesn't tend to follow the fundamentals at all. Um, and yeah, it is very reminiscent of, uh, 2014 Bitcoin cycle. So, so if you guys are feeling really optimistic about Ethereum at this point, how are you guys positioning yourselves as investors? Yeah, um, I think that's a great 
question, Tony. I, I think for us, um, you know, we manage a, a liquid portfolio um, in addition to uh, an a liquid por- uh, side of the portfolio as well. Um, and we've certainly made strategic and tactical um, changes um, to basically overweight Ethereum at this point. I think the market has gotten completely over its heels in terms of um, its uh, skepticism for the platform working. Um, I don't think it's rooted in reality at all. And I don't think that um, you can point to the price movements of uh, this this asset um, as doing anything other than saying that the price went down and has nothing to do with um, the actual fundamentals. So I think um, I think that's definitely you know something that we've um, tried to focus on, especially when you've had a bunch of doom and gloom um, recently with, with prices. Spencer, can you say more about your you know how you think about portfolio construction? Um, at DDC and, and investment thesis more broadly in terms of what, what specifically you're looking for? So basically at, at, at our fund, um, we run a diversified portfolio of, of crypto assets and it's agnostic to stage. The, the fund has carte blanche to go and, and invest in, you know, something like a, a presale or something more liquid or, um, something that, uh, is, is liquid and on, and on the market today. So at Scalar, I think we we try to prioritize, you know, a broad variety of investment theses. So we definitely, you know, place significant weight on the current incumbent coins, such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, as, you know, having a very high probability of kind of becoming the dominant crypto assets of the future. But we also kind of tend to look at areas that you know the investor community is for for whatever reason they're they're undervaluing in a big way and you know we think privacy is a you know very important property of all crypto assets and especially so if you subscribe to the kind of fat money theory and for whatever reason you know privacy has been one of the most undervalued traits in the entire space um and you know, some of these coins like Zcash, they even share Bitcoin's monetary policy, yet trade at a, you know, very tiny sliver of its market cap. And sure, a lot of this can be attributed to, you know, less liquidity, less Lindy effect, kind of less developer mind share, um, whole host of reasons. But think that, you know, the, the way the way things have been trending and, and you're starting to see a lot of chain analysis companies kind of prop up and you're starting to see authorities start to you know track bitcoin criminals so to speak i think that it seems quite natural that you know the market will start to place a larger premium on privacy um beyond that we also kind of look at teams and projects that are trying to kind of solve the hard challenges in crypto today uh scalability being one of them so we definitely, you know, always keep an eye out for teams that are approaching the scalability problem in novel fashion. For example, Cadena is Cadena is one of them. We're a fundamentals focused crypto fund that is diversified kind of across the entire spectrum. So we invest in um, assets that are liquid, but also in liquid assets. And I, and I think 
um, you know, kind of like Cyrus, where we're looking for things that are perhaps maybe undervalued, like a privacy coin um, or um, some other things. Um, we're perfectly okay in, in being with um, some of the larger market cap, slower, um, you know, moving assets like like a Bitcoin or like an Ethereum that we believe, you know, on a on a probabilistic um, sense, have the highest chance of of succeeding long term. And so, um, you know, we're looking for protocols that we believe can offer um, censorship resistance and um, the properties of decentralization, which will kind of enable a, a greater um, and more open financial ecosystem. And um, in terms of the portfolio construction, um, it, it really depends on um, some of those factors and also the time in which um, we're investing. So I think right now um, you look at something like uh, the, the difference between private and public um, deals. Uh, we're in a little bit of a bubble, I would say, um, on the private side where um, valuations have totally gotten ahead of themselves. And I think for us, we're totally fine um, being and playing in the public market and purchasing some of those early stage tokens when they become liquid. Um, we're perfectly okay with being in fewer deals on the on the early stage side um, and just waiting and biding our time to make sure that they have product market fit. So I think when it comes to portfolio construction, um, you have to be super nimble, um, especially in this industry, which is constantly changing. Um, but you're always looking for things that are undervalued or or things that um, you know the market isn't necessarily um, wrapping their head around um, in terms of the the opportunity set. Cool. In a, a sort of a you know, gearing towards a close here, what's your you know for all the builders out there um, who are you know inspired by Ethereum or, or looking to do something on it? What what is your sort of a request for products in terms of or what do you want to see people building? As it relates to Ethereum, where it can really provide value to the ecosystem. I think it's about building on top of some of the great protocols that have already um, started building on top of Ethereum. So whether that's a, a Dharma or um, a, you know a Dharma for loans or zero X for decentralized exchange, um, kind of using these you know huge infrastructure elements in order to give um, broader financial services to the rest of the world. I think that's an incredibly noble use case. It's the reason why I got into crypto in the first place. And um, in terms of the market opportunity, it's so huge, but it's also so compelling and, and so important um, that we're kind of always looking for um, more people to be able to do that. I think for me, I'm, you know, I'd like to start seeing more interest on the protocol side than the application side. I think there are obviously uh plenty of apps in development right now. Um, you know, if I had to say that there was a, you know, there was a weak point of Ethereum, it's, it would be, you know, potentially on the protocol side where, you know, maybe it's not as decentralized or as, you know, as secure as it could be. Um, you know, I'm always looking to see that, you know, always hoping to see more kind of seasoned developers enter the space and, and kind of start working towards hardening the, the protocol layer as much as possible. Uh, and another thing I was going to add is it's not necessarily a, an application that people could be building, but one thing I would like to see in the Ethereum ecosystem are more 
um, researchers, um, you know, devote their time to um, figuring out what the best supply is for ether. Um, I think we touched on on this podcast, you know, the uncertainty just with, you know, it being used for so many different things, as well as the uncertainty for something like a hard cap um, and what that means once a block reward is over with, how you can still continue to secure the network. I think this modeling um, is going to be extremely important. And with Ethereum, you have a community that is receptive to um, new ideas and um, building kind of the best possible um, system out there. And so um, I think that is um, definitely an area of research that I would encourage more people to get involved in. And, and I think it's a need, a, a need for the community too. Cool. Um, well, awesome. Guys, it's been a really fantastic episode. Thank you all so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. It was awesome. Appreciate it. Cool. Take care, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.